0: Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from Spacetime with The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time. A key characteristic of life discovered in space for the first time. New ideas on the nature of black holes. And this month's Perseids meteor showers expected to be the best in 20 years. All that and more coming up on Space Time.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: Scientists have discovered the first molecule in space that has a key attribute associated with life, handedness or chirality. The breakthrough, reported in the journal Science, is expected to help researchers solve one of the greatest mysteries in biology, the origin of homochirality. in other words, whether a molecular structure is left or right-handed. In the process, this new discovery offers fresh insights into what we might expect from life throughout the universe. Like your hands, many molecules exist in forms that are mirror images of each other. However, molecules associated with life, like amino acids, proteins, enzymes and sugars, are found in nature only in one form. For example, amino acids, which make up proteins, only exist in nature in a left-handed form, while sugars, found in DNA, are exclusively right-handed. This phenomenon is known as homocryality. CSIRO, Astronomy and Space Sciences Director of Operations, Dr John Reynolds, says understanding how homocryality came about is a major puzzle in biology. Cryo molecules are essential to biology on Earth, but up until now they've not been known to exist outside our solar system. Scientists use both the CSIRO's Parks Radio Telescope in western New South Wales and the National Science Foundation's Green Bank Radio Observatory in West Virginia to discover the handed molecule propylene oxide in an interstellar cloud called Sagittarius B2. On Earth, propylene oxide is a common compound used for making polyurethane. The giant molecular cloud, Sagittarius B2, is located towards the centre of our Milky Way galaxy and is actively making new stars. An Australian finding two decades ago suggested how ultraviolet light from a forming star could bias the molecules in space around it, leading to one of the handed forms being more common than the other. The Parkes radio telescope discovered its first interstellar molecule, HCHS, thiophomaldehyde, in 1971, and has gone on to find many others since. John Reynolds says the new discovery gives scientists a fresh window into how an incredibly important type of molecule is made in space. And this in turn gives researchers a chance to understand the impact the process might have on life throughout the universe.
1: Sagittarius B2 was a well-known hunting ground for molecules in space. There are a couple of very favourite spots where astronomers have looked. And over the years we've found something like, uh, I think it's 180 different species of molecule but this latest discovery is by far and away I think the most complicated molecule we've found so far and that's what makes it really exciting and because it's complicated it has this property called chirality that is it's left it comes in two forms a left handed and a right handed form which are not identical and this is the first time such a molecule has been detected in space one that has mirror symmetry and comes in these two forms
0: and that's interesting
1: because a lot of the building blocks of basic life on earth have this same left hand right handed form.
0: Propylene oxide is there something special about that molecule itself? Plastic, isn't
1: it? It is used in plastic, yeah. It's not necessarily what they call a probiotic molecule that would be found in life, but it is, it's the complexity and the fact that it's got this uh, chiral form which makes it really interesting because, you know, the goal of astrobiology really is to locate, or one of the goals is to locate these so called probiotic molecules in space that could be the
0: starting. Uh, the building blocks for life to have formed. The initial detection was made using their huge telescope in Greenbank, West Virginia and then Parks did the backup work, the confirmation.
1: That's exactly right, yes. So the lead investigators on this project uh, had access to a survey that had already been done at the Greenbank telescope. This is the 100 metre telescope on the east coast of the US that was built to replace one that fell down a few years ago, if you remember that. But this is a beautiful telescope, 100 metres in aperture. And they found two of the three fingerprints they were looking for for this molecule, but they were unable to find the third, because of the radio frequency interference at that site. So, in order to confirm the investigation and get the three pieces they needed to get a confirmation, they came to Australia to use the Parkes telescope, which has a cleaner RFI, as we call it, a radio frequency interference environment. And they were able to make successful observations at this third frequency, which confirmed the discovery.
0: What makes propylene oxide such a useful molecule
1: for study? Its complexity. I guess the the guys leading this investigation are chemists. So they had a pretty good idea, I think, of what complex molecule might be a good target to look for in space. They conducted experiments in the laboratory to measure the frequencies associated with this uh, molecule and that's what gave them the impetus to go out and find it. I'm not sure that there's anything particularly special about uh, propylene oxide except for this fact that it is a large molecule and it does have this left hand, right hand uh, chirality.
0: What about the next step now? You've found one. I guess the idea is to find something more complex like a biomolecule? Uh, exactly right, yes. I
1: mean the, the whole Holy Grail really for some years has been to find an amino acid in space. Now, last year, in fact, one of the European space missions, uh, Rosetta, actually managed to find the first amino acid in space. they actually took samples of this acid from around the comet.
0: At 67P, Sheremov-Gerasimenko, very historic discovery, first time amino acids have been actually detected oozing from the comet itself. Exactly right, yeah, this is uh, glycine which is
1: the simplest of the amino acids and is in fact a simpler molecule than um, the one we've found at Parks and Greenbank, propylene oxide, and it doesn't have this left-handed, right-handed chirality. So it's an equally, I'd say, important discovery and to be able to sample dust from a comet, I mean, how good is that? Obviously, with the space mission, now you're talking about very expensive sort of astronomy compared to conventional ground radio telescopes. Nonetheless a really exciting discovery and I think the push will now be on to get
0: even more complex molecules including some of the more complicated amino acids. Because this Sagittarius B2 region is such an intense star forming region it must be loaded with lots of ultraviolet radiation coming from hot young stars that are being made there that are forming there in that stellar nursery. Would that be playing a role in the formation of these molecules? Yeah absolutely. In fact
1: intense ultraviolet radiation is uh, an inhibitor of molecular formation it tends to break them up. But it's part of the process by which these molecules are made. In fact one of the interesting theories, perhaps the only theory that we have at the moment for why we might get an excess of a left-handed version of a molecule versus its right-handed partner is exactly through this UV radiation. If the UV radiation becomes circularly polarized which light is able to do then it can preferentially break up one version of the molecule and leave the other one relatively untouched. And this could be a possible mechanism by which we end up on Earth with, you know, an excess of one-handedness
0: of amino acids and not much of the other. A clue to why we are what we are. Exactly. That's Dr John Reynolds, Director of Operations with CSIRO Astronomy and Space Sciences. A team of scientists have developed a new way of looking at the physics of black holes. Black holes are often considered the strangest objects in the universe. Objects of zero size and infinite density. They're gravitational waves built into the fabric of space-time. Once an object passes the event horizon of a black hole, a sort of point of no return, it will fall forever into the black hole's singularity. One of the biggest problems when studying black holes is that the laws of physics as we understand them cease to apply inside a black hole. Large quantities of matter and energy concentrate in an infinitely small place, the gravitational singularity, where space-time curves towards infinity and all matter is destroyed. Or is it? A new study reported in the journal Classical and Quantum Gravity claims the singularities at the centre of black holes could be thought of as imperfections in the geometric structure of space-time. The research team from the University of Valencia and the University of Lisbon claimed that by looking at these as geometric structures in space-time, they've been able to resolve the problem of the infinite space-deforming gravitational pull. Their hypotheses suggest that matter might in fact survive its foray into these space objects and then come out the other side. Scientists view black holes as theoretical laboratories for trying out new ideas about gravity and the new idea takes things a step further by allowing scientists to analyse black holes using theories besides Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. The authors apply geometric structures similar to those seen in a crystal or graphene layer, since these geometries better match what happens inside a black hole. They say that just as crystals have imperfections in their microscopic structure, the central region of a black hole can be interpreted as an anomaly in space-time, requiring new geometric elements in order to be able to describe them more precisely. So the team explored new options, taking inspiration from facts observed in nature. Using these new geometries, they developed a description of black holes in which the centre point, the singularity, becomes a very small spherical surface. This surface is interpreted as the existence of a wormhole within the black hole. Consequently, the hypothesis helps resolve several problems in the interpretation of electrically charged black holes. It solves the problem of the singularity, since there's a door in the centre of the black hole, namely the wormhole, through which space and time can continue. The study was based on the simplest known type of black hole, one which is both rotationless and electrically charged. The wormhole predicted by the equations is smaller than an atomic nucleus, but it does get bigger the bigger the charge stored in the black hole. So a hypothetical traveller entering a black hole of this kind would be stretched to the extreme or spaghettified, as astronomers like to say, after which they'd be able to enter the wormhole and upon exiting the wormhole, they'd be compacted back to their normal size. Seen from outside, these forces of stretching and compaction would seem infinite, but the traveler themselves living it firsthand would experience extremely intense, but not infinite, forces. The proposed model postulates that matter would not be lost inside the singularity, but rather would be expelled out the other side through the wormhole at its centre to another region of the universe. Another problem which this hypothesis resolves is the need to use exotic energy sources to generate wormholes. In Albert Einstein's theory of gravity, these so-called doors would only appear in the presence of matter with unusual properties, including a negative energy, pressure or gravity. The problem is, nothing like this has ever been observed in the real universe. In this hypothesis, the wormhole can appear out of ordinary matter and energy, such as an electric field the interest in wormholes for theoretical physicists goes far beyond generating tunnels or doors in space-time to connect two points in the universe. They would also help explain the nature of elementary particles and phenomena such as quantum entanglement, Einstein's spooky action at a distance. Thanks to this new interpretation, the existence of these objects might now be just a little bit closer to science fact rather than science fiction. year's Perseids Meteor shower is set for its best show in almost 20 years. Around 150 meteors an hour are expected to delight sky during its peak on the nights of August 11th, 12th and 13th, depending on which hemisphere you're in. The Perseids are so named because they appear to be coming out of the direction or radiant of the constellation Perseus. And our listeners north of the equator will definitely be getting the best show as the radiant will be high in the sky at night. However, for sky watchers in the southern hemisphere, the radiant will be below the horizon. And that means you'll only be able to see the occasional meteor coming over the northern horizon. The Perseids are actually a debris trail left behind in the wake of the comet 109p Swift-Tuttle. The orbit of the 26km wide comet brings it to the inner solar system every 133 years. Swift-Tuttle has been captured into a 1 to 11 orbital resonance with Jupiter, which means it completes one orbit around the Sun for every 11 Jovian orbits. This means that its proper long-term average orbital period is 130.48 Earth years. The comet was independently discovered by both Lewis Swift on July 16, 1862 and by Horace Parnell-Tuttle on July 19, 1862. Comet Swift tattles interesting because it's on an orbit which makes repeated close approaches to the Earth-Moon system, with an Earth-minimal orbital intersection distance of just 130,000 kilometres, a veritable hair's breadth in astronomical terms. Upon its 1992 rediscovery, the comet's date of perihelion passage, that is, its closest approach to the Sun, was off from the then-current prediction by 17 days. It was then noticed that if its next perihelion passage, which will be on July the 11th, 2126, is off by another 15 days and instead occurred on July the 26th, the comet would pass perilously close to the Earth or the Moon on August the 14th, 2126. Given the 26-kilometre-wide size of the nucleus of Comet Swift-Tuttle, this was of some concern. However, follow-up observations have found the comet's orbit is very stable and so there's no real threat over the next 2,000 years at least. Astronomers now know that the comet will in fact pass about 22,900,000 kilometres from Earth on August 5, 2126. Still relatively close, but no longer a threat. Mind you, extrapolation of these orbital figures indicates that the comet will have an extremely close encounter with the Earth on September 15th in the year 4479, with an impact probability of 0.0001%. Comet Swift-Tuttle is the largest known solar system object that makes repeated close approaches to the Earth with a relative velocity of 60 kilometres per second. An Earth impact would have an estimated energy release some 27 times greater than the dinosaur-killing KT boundary event impactor, which struck the Earth 66 million years ago, wiping out most life on the planet. Because of this, Comet Swift-Tuttle has been described as the single most dangerous object known to humanity. NASA mission scientists are working overtime to try and restore systems aboard the Solar Dynamics Observatory spacecraft, following a major anomaly which has shut down its science instruments. The Solar Dynamics Observatory, or SDO, was studying a lunar transit on August 2 as the Moon passed between the spacecraft and the Sun. However, the spacecraft failed to return to science mode at the end of the transit. SDO is currently orbiting on internal mode. The team is receiving data from the spacecraft and they're bringing SDO's instruments back online. Two of SDO's three science instruments, the heliospheric and magnetic imager, and the extreme ultraviolet variability experiment are now working again and sending science data to the Earth. However, mission managers are still working to return the SDO's third science instrument, the Atmospheric Imaging Assembly, back to service. Sdo was launched on February 11, 2010 on an Atlas V rocket from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida on a 10-year mission to study the Sun. The 3.1-ton satellite is studying the influence of the Sun on the Earth and near-Earth space by observing the solar atmosphere in multiple wavelengths simultaneously. Sdo is investigating how the Sun's magnetic field is generated and structured, how the stored magnetic energy is converted and released into the heliosphere in the form of solar wind and variations in solar radiance. Solar radiance is the amount of electromagnetic radiation received from the sun over a given area. The spacecraft is located in a geosynchronous orbit thirty five thousand eight hundred kilometres above the equator. The United States Navy says the main engine aboard its new MUSOS-5 communications satellite has failed, preventing the billion-dollar spacecraft reaching its intended geostationary orbit. The Navy are now looking at ways to salvage the satellite, which was launched aboard an Atlas V rocket from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida back on June 24th. The 6.8-tonne MUSOS-5 was to be the last of five mobile user-objective system satellites designed under a $7.7 billion project to provide worldwide ultra-high frequency communications for the US military. The main propulsion system aboard the Lockheed Martin-built spacecraft suddenly failed while performing one of seven crucial rocket engine burns, needed to raise and circularize its orbit to a 37,000-kilometre-high geosynchronous equatorial orbit. USOS 5 was equipped with a 100-pound thrust Japanese IHI Aerospace TB4 main engine, burning a mix of hydrazine fuel and nitrogen tetroxide. The crippled spacecraft is now in a 16-hour orbit, more than 19,000 kilometres short of a usable orbital perch. With its main engine now out of use, mission managers are looking at using the spacecraft's small manoeuvring thrusters in an attempt to try and get the satellite into a more useful position. Musos 5 is equipped with six 5-pound and 12 0.2-pound aerojet rocket-iron hydrazine monopropellant thrusters for attitude control. The spacecraft was supposed to achieve geosynchronous orbit in view of the Hawaii ground station on July 3 for orbital checkout. It was then to be relocated above the Indian Ocean and begin service activation before the end of the year. The United States government has given approval for a private company to launch a mission to land on the Moon next year. Moon Express plans to use a rocket lab electron launch vehicle to fly its MX-1 lander to the lunar surface. The approval comes despite the lack of any formal regulatory framework for commercial space missions to other worlds. Prior to Moon Express, all non-government space travel was pretty well limited to Earth orbit. The temporary approval was given following meetings between Moon Express, the White House the Federal Aviation Administration and the U.S. State Department. Under the temporary agreement, the U.S. government will oversee all stages of the Moon Express mission. For the longer term, U.S. legislators are working on a framework to regulate and oversee all private deep space missions. Washington hopes to have that in place in time for SpaceX's planned mission to Mars in 2018 and the plans by Bigelow Aerospace to launch its first space tourist hotel into orbit by 2020. Moon Express needs to reach the lunar surface by 2017 if it's to win the Google Lunar X Prize, an international competition designed to send the first privately funded spacecraft to the surface of the Moon. It's one of 17 contenders and one of just two to have already secured a launch contract. Moon Express's longer term plans are to mine the lunar surface for rare elements and metals. However, until now, US law didn't guarantee that any private company would have a legal right to keep and sell any resources that mined on the moon, or for that matter, anything captured in space, such as plans by another company called Planetary Resources to commence asteroid mining. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, PocketCasts. SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from spacetimewithstuartgarry.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr.
1: Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: This show is also broadcast coast to coast across the United States on Science Three Hundred and Sixty Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington DC. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.
0: Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month exploring the mystery of fast radio bursts.